Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. This week, we're sitting down with John Farragon to talk all about the latest update from CROI, which stands for the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections. Welcome, John. Um, thanks so much, uh, Mariana, for having, uh, having me here today. Um, and it's going to be an interesting one on the CROI update. <laughs> so, John, can you give folks a quick overview of what CROI is for those who might not be familiar? Yeah, I hope everybody's, most people might be familiar, but if you're not, you know, the CROI, the CROI is, the, the again, the conference on retroviruses and opportunistic infections. This has been, this is actually the 28th CROI. Uh, this year was actually done virtually. Uh, last year was also also virtually. Um, I think next year it's going to be in Denver. Uh, but it basically, it's an annual meeting that really kind of highlights what's happening in the world of uh, not only just of um, of HIV, but also on hepatitis C. And now there was quite a bit of information uh, over half the abstracts this year on COVID. So there's a, quite a bit of information, but CROI is a great meeting. It's probably the highest level scientific meeting, I would say, in, in the HIV field that's that's done uh, on an annual basis. And it's run by pretty much with um, CROI is its own organization, but a lot of it's done by through the IAS USA, which is the International Antiviral Society USA. Um, they help out quite a bit with doing a lot of the organization. So it's a great meeting. And if you've never been to one, you know, you um, it's, it's a great meeting to attend to learn about, about HIV. A lot of good plenaries and then also a lot of good basic science information too. So it's not just the clinical piece, it's also the, the basic science information too. So there's a lot of PhD type people who are doing virology research that are that are often there. So great meeting, um, a lot of fun. It's good to connect and network with people, but it, obviously it was a little bit harder with the virtual um, uh, virtual format, but uh, a great meeting nonetheless. So. so what were some of the key takeaways from this last CROI meeting, which happened last month in March? Um, yeah, so so thanks. These are, you know, obviously the, I think um, the opportunity to review some of these data, I think is really, really important. Um, you know, this will just kind of really be a base, a basic top line overview. I just encourage you to take a look at the website for CROI. Some of the information is is on, is, is a, it may still be available and some of the presentations might be able to be viewed, viewed online. But in addition, there's um, a lot of updates that have been done um, on different, uh, through different organizations on the CROI meeting. Uh, but again, like I said, this year was held virtually just like it was last year. I grouped um, I grouped the update today uh, into kind of four sections, uh, one on COVID treatment, one on kind of COVID disparities in care, which I think is a, kind of a hot topic right now, looking at um, uh, COVID and, and especially in HIV and disparities in, in care. Um, so there were some new HIV medications that were covered, and then we'll just spend a few minutes talking about PrEP. So um, instead, we'll, we'll delve right into it. So we'll dive right in, right? So COVID, Treatments for COVID, there's just a few key points in it for COVID treatment. There was a couple main studies. The first one was the Blaze One study. And I think out of all of them, I think this is probably the most important one. Uh, this has looked at the role of dual monoclonal antibody therapy with drugs called BAM, lenivimab, and edisevimab. So, uh, so as many of you can realize, the new monoclonals have really kind of created another, another language on some level for us. We have to learn these new words, right? There's a lot of them that are out there, but um, I'm going to call it BAM and ETI. So BAM and ETI together uh, was in this phase three study. It was given as one dose. And what they found is actually a 70% reduction in hospitalizations and death at day 29 for these people who were, um, who were at risk for, for COVID. Uh, COVID. So really a, a remarkable results. The goal of the was basically um, in these outpatient treatments is to prevent people from having to go to the hospital 
and also to reduce their subsequent mortality. So a lot of these meds for the EUAs are just for outpatient use. So these drugs are given to people on the outpatient side who have mild to moderate symptoms of COVID, and then hopefully they don't go to the hospital and they, and they don't wind up um, ultimately passing away from COVID-19. Um, so that's really the key piece. So there were actually no deaths that occurred in the BAM at the arm. And I think this is, you're going to find this very similar to what we hear about the vaccines and even some of the other, other uh, monoclonal antibody combinations. There's, there's really no patients dying who get some kind of an intervention for, for, for COVID, which I think is really remarkable. Some additional viral load data presented also found that lower viral loads were found in the treatment arm versus placebo. So I think these combinations are, I think are gonna be really helpful. And again, this one is actually in, uh, available as emergency use authorization for outpatients. It's really prior to hospitalization, although if you're in the hospital for something else and you develop COVID, there may be a role for this, but you know, um, it's really for outpatients for the most part. Um, the BLAZE-2 study was a little bit different. This one used BAM lenivimab alone in nursing homes. So what they did this, it was actually a cool study. They actually had, um, once an outback outbreak was in, identified in a nursing home, they had these large mobile vans that had all the supplies for the, to give the BAM lenivimab infusion. And, and they actually drove around the country and so they would consent people at the nursing homes and they would give the at-risk residents and even some of the facility employees one dose of BAM. And it actually worked. So interestingly, they actually showed an 80% reduction in the risk of people getting COVID-19 for those people who had, who had received uh, the intervention when compared to placebo. So basically people are at risk, they get, a, they get identified as, you know, they've been exposed, quote unquote, right? And they give people BAM, lenivimab and 80% reduction in, in, in those patients getting, in, in those residents and also the employees getting, getting COVID. And the people actually got BAM lenivimab, there was no deaths again, right? So even this just BAM monotherapy. Um, so patients and residents, residents definitely benefited from these, from these treatments. Uh, you know, while these are studies are, while this study is interesting, you know, this Blaze 2 study, I can tell you that right now, uh, based on the guidelines from the NIH, the BAM lenivimab is not recommended currently alone. It's, it's that combination of using the BAM, uh, BAM lenivimab plus the etacetimab, which, is, which was used in the Blaze 1 study I talked about a few minutes ago. That's really what's going to be preferred um, in, the, uh, in, in the most recent versions of the, of the NIH guidelines. At our center here at Albany Med, we have BAM plus, et, uh, plus ETI alone. Then we also have the, the next, uh, the Regeneron uh, which is the casarivimab plus imdevimab. So this BAM, the BAM lenivimab plus the etacetimab, that's the Lilly combination for for uh, for monoclonal antibodies, and then the 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 Regen Cove is the is the Regeneron one, which I'll which I'll cover next. So the Regen Cove, this is the casarivimab plus uh, imdevimab. So this is the combination. There was some data actually presented at Corey. Now we know about the infusion data that's been out there, and it's and it's shown very good results. But in the study that was presented at Croy, they actually gave it as a sub-Q injection for COVID-19 prevention of close household contacts. So very similar to what they did in the nursing homes, this one was kind of like an outpatient study where they looked at people, if you had, if you were exposed to somebody with COVID and you had close household contacts, they would give you this casarivimab plus endevimab together um, as a single uh, sub-Q sub injection. So it was very effective and actually prevented symptomatic infections in 100% of the cases and also had large reductions in, in, in some of the higher viral loads um, uh, in, in some of the patients and overall a reduction in infection by about 50%. So again, the most important thing is that we're giving basically um, a, a sub-Q injection to prevent people from getting, getting COVID if they're high risk, if they've been exposed to people. Interesting data, I think. And um, 
I think uh, something to think about, maybe we'll be, we'll be using this as a prevention option for COVID-19 for close uh, household contacts in the future. That one, the, the, the sub-Q injection is not available yet. It's still in development, but, it, but it's, it's very, very interesting data. Was there any data on disparities in care with COVID in people living with HIV? Yeah, so very important topic, right, Mariana? This is something that people are, are asking about. People are, are wondering about this, what's happening in the HIV population. And there are some data sets that I think help us answer this. Um, some of them have been have been published previously. Um, there's some data, you know, from from different centers that that have been that have been published. But a couple of large databases that I will that I'll just focus on a few of them. There was more than this at the conference, but there's a couple that I'll, that I'll focus on. The first one I'll, I'll talk about is the NC3 database. This is a large NIH-sponsored database of medical records uh, of people who um, uh, that was established during the COVID-19 outbreak. And it looks at basically patients who are 18 years of older um, and who have COVID-19 uh, uh, infection and whether or not they're HIV infected or, or not. And this was um, uh, looking at 18 years or older between January of 2020 through January of 2021. So roughly one year of data. And over just over just over 375,000 cases uh, were, were found. About 2,500 were identified in persons living with diagnosed HIV infection. So interesting when they look back, comparing people living with diagnosed HIV infection to those without HIV infection, the people living um, with diagnosed HIV infection were more likely to be non-Hispanic Black. That was 44 versus 40% statistically different or Hispanic, which is 8.6% versus 5.7% when you compare those, um, those, those populations to non-Hispanic white patients. And again, these were statistically different. So again, a, an inc a slightly higher rate of, um, of COVID-19 in people living with diagnosed HIV in, these, in the non-Hispanic black patients and also in Hispanic patients. And that's the, those are the, the demographic descriptions that they used in the study. And again, this is an NIH database. I know sometimes people use Latinx, and they use different um, different uh, terminology, but these are the these are the terminologies to the terminology that they used in the in the database. So I just want to be consistent with that. Um, similar data was found also in this this also large database called the Scenix cohort. Higher rates of COVID nineteen were found at baseline for Black versus non Black patients who had who had COVID. Database is helpful because it actually helped us to look at predictors for hospitalization for people living with with with, with diagnosed HIV, and they found that seven Seven things were predictive of being admitted to the hospital, and they were age greater than 60, a CD4 or T cell count less than 350, so on a lower end of CD4 counts, hepatitis C, HCV co-infection, higher CVD risk score, which is our cardiovascular disease risk score that we often do in patients, having diabetes, high blood pressure, medication use, and also renal function with an estimated GFR of less than 60. So again, lower, um, you know, kidneys not working as well at baseline. These are all predictors for hospitalization. So really, I think very helpful to kind of, kind of help us identify who should get admitted to the hospital versus who shouldn't. They may potentially play a role in some of these, some of these database studies. And then finally, to round out this section, this is really a huge database, which I think a lot of people weren't aware of. It's, it includes 44 healthcare organizations in the U.S. with just under 300,000 COVID-19 cases. It's called the, the TriNet-X database. And of those 300,000 COVID-19 cases, um, about 1,600 were people living with, with diagnosed HIV. And in this database, they found that people living with diagnosed HIV had a higher risk of hospitalization. It was actually 26% higher. 
and a 32% higher chance of an ICU stay with mechanical ventilation. So again, ventilation, uh, use of ventilator was more common and also hospitalization was com more common in people living with, with diagnosed HIV. I think the other piece that's really important is that a lot of people ask about mortality and that data is not always there and it's not always consistent. Some, some show there's a higher mortality, some show there's no difference, but this one had no statistical difference with 2.9% for people living with diagnosed HIV versus 2.3% for those people without diagnosed HIV. So again, just some of the highlights, I think, of the disparities in care. So I think we're thinking um, uh, Black patients, uh, Latinx, Hispanic patients are going to be higher higher rates, higher hospitalizations in HIV, and also um, higher risk of, of, of mechanical ventilation, I think, is, I think are things we can kind of state based on the size of some of these databases that were reviewed at, at the core meeting. Really great information, I think, to help us to, to continue to care for our, our, our people living with HIV infection who develop um, SARS-CoV-2 infection and ultimately get COVID-19 um, disease. What about new drugs, John? Was there any data on that? Yeah, so, so so I guess the next section we'll cover, right? We'll talk a little bit about new drugs, right? So the, there were studies on, on, on new drugs and new HIV drugs. And I think there was, I'm going to really kind of narrow it down to four. There probably were more than this, but these are the big ones. The first is the Merck uh, 8507 uh, non-nucleoside. So this is an NNRTI. Uh, it's very similar to if uh, if if any of you are familiar with the drug called Deraverine, which is a also from Merck. Um, the brand name is Pifeltro. It's very similar to that, but it demonstrated some additive activity when it was combined with their new um, NRTTI, which is a um, a trans um, a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. That's a new class of drugs, and the first in that class is this drug called Aslatrovir. So when they paired these two drugs together, they found that they're actually additive, um, had additive effects between these, between these two. And just to know that these can be given once weekly between the two of them. So the A507 and the Aslatrovir, it will likely be in a once weekly tablet um, given orally. It's an interesting study you'll we'll have to see. But when they paired these two, these, there is a, um, a study that's ongoing with these two drugs paired together. And it's a switch study off of Bictarvi onto these, onto the H507 and Aslatrovir. So we'll see. I don't think that's enrolling yet, but it is, uh, it is listed as, as a study that they're going to be doing for, um, uh, for the future. So, so many of you also, I've just mentioned Aslatrovir. The other thing about Aslatrovir that's really kind of interesting is that they're using it as an implant for once yearly prep using that, that Nexplan technology, which is used um, for their contraception uh, product. So they have a drug called Nexplanon, which is one of those uh, in, injectable, I say injectable, it's been more of an implant, right? So they, they have a, a device that they actually put it, you know, an implant that's actually, uh, at least at least for the HIV prevention piece, it looks like it's gonna last probably a year. So they did studies on this and they, this is kind of a newer version of the, uh, of the implant really looked at different doses. It looks like that 56 milligram, there's a 48, 52 and 56. The 56 milligram dose really had the best PK and kept the drug levels above um, high enough so that they'd actually prevent HIV. So again, we'll have to stay tuned uh, to this data data moving, moving forward. Um, real quick, the GSK-254, this is a new maturation inhibitor, also presented to very good viral load reductions with monotherapy with various doses. Some of the initial um, studies with 200 milligrams at 10 days showed some resistance. So they actually modified the phase two studies, um, the, second, the second phase of the studies <clears throat> to have different doses and only to study them for seven days of monotherapy. In that case, the resistance didn't occur. So I think really the shorter term of going seven versus 10 days really prevented some of the resistance from occurring. But the bottom line, it's a new mechanism 
good PK, uh, and it looks like some good safety profiles too. So we'll have to stay, stay tuned. There have been other maturation inhibitors that have been in development, but most of them have caused resistance. And this one, at least from the seven-day studies, we don't seem to see a lot of resistance so far. And then, and then just a couple more things. I, I think finally, Lana Capravir, this is actually a first-in-class capsid inhibitor. So this is actually inhibits how the capsid kind of breaks down. So if you remember the capsid is the, is kind of um, where all of the, um, where all the genetic material for the virus is kind of housed, right? So that capsid has to kind of be unpeeled and it kind of falls apart. And, and in that step, the, there's, a, there's a, a step that can be inhibited and that's what this capsid inhibitor does, prevents that, that kind of crumbling of the capsid. And also when the capsid is rebuilt later on in the life cycle of the virus, it also prevents that step as well. So it's kind of a cool, mechanism where there's a couple of different things happening. Anyways, most importantly, six month sub Q injection under study for, for PrEP, but at Croy they presented from treatment experience data where they had people who were basically had very, very little options left. Um, uh, you know, four to five log copies of viral loads, which is in, you know, probably close to hundred thousand range. Um, CD4 is around 150 and over 20 years of treatment experience, really, really heavily treated patients, close to 90% had been on every available class of HIV medications in the past. And, and then, so what they did was they actually gave monotherapy, this lenacapavir, just one injection. And then they looked at them and said, what happens? And after two weeks uh, of monotherapy, there was an 88% had at least a half a log reduction in viral load. And at the end of 26 weeks of therapy in the number of patients that got through that far, 73% um, of the patients um, were undetectable, less than 50 copies. And with an average <clears throat> CD4 cell increase of about 70 cells. So again, these are really difficult to treat patients. We don't have a lot of these patients left, but the ones that are, a lot of them are just waiting for the next drug, waiting for the next lifeline to kind of keep them uh, alive to get to the, to get to the next step and, and hopefully to, to kind of, you know, improve their quality of life, get their CD4s up, hopefully get them to undetectable. Resistance was rare, only occurred in two patients, but again, stay tuned for lenacapavir. I think that's going to be an interesting product. And interesting at the, right around the time of the conference, there was a, was a, a press release that actually, uh, um, from between Merck and Gilead, potentially working together using a Slatrovir and Lenacapavir. So Slatrovir is the long-acting implant and also has long-acting PO medications as well. And then this Lenacapavir sub-Q, they're going to work together and potentially developing some formulations that may actually involve both of those drugs together. Maybe for prep, it might actually be for treatment too. So we'll have to see what actually happens. But really, for me, as as you know, as a as a pharmacist, this is really incredible technology, incredible information that we're looking at on, on these, on these new, newer medications. So again, a lot of, lot of information, but I think those are kind of the highlights of, of the, of the big things that were covered at, at Croy. Another big topic that comes to mind for me is HIV prevention. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about, you know, what was covered, what information was provided on that topic during Croy? Yeah. So, right. We worry about prevention, right? That's one of our, you know, the uh, EHE, right. The ending the HIV epidemic. This is a big thing that the ATCs are, are involved with, right. Is from, um, you know, the um, uh, ending the HIV epidemic, our, our whole plan. And one of the big pieces of that is obviously HIV prevention, right. And a big piece of the prevention arm is basically looking at PrEP. So getting people on, 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 on prevention uh, treatment who are at high risk. So, our last story, I think, is really about the uh, the cabotegavir. We we talked about the aslatavir implant, so that's interesting for prep. But the cabotegavir HPTN studies. Now we talked about these before, if you remember. We talked about the OE3, which is the the the, the MSM and the transgender study, men having sex with men and transgender patients, and then the OE4 was the 
I call it the quote unquote sister study, right? But that was in females. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but right, female study was done the 084. We don't have we don't have data on the lab work from the 084, but they did present 083 in the men and then the men having sex with men. Uh, laboratory studies, which is really interesting. We looked at two month injections of cabotegavir. And again, if you remember, they compared it to Truvada and actually they, they found that cab was actually statistically superior to Truvada basically um, in the cab injection did better than Truvada for, for HIV prevention. Well, you know, obviously I think we, we, we kind of thought, thought this, but one of the things you always worry about is were people actually taking the Truvada and what they actually showed, they showed data in this, in this study that showed that, um, th that the people in the Truvada arm 39 of those patients developed HIV infection. And if you looked at 37 out of those 39, either had no or a low level of tenofovir and dried blood spots around the time of infection. So these dried blood spots have really been accepted where they do dried blood spots and they can go back and they can go look and they can see if there's any tenofovir um, in, in, those, in those dried blood spots. It's a, it's a standard way of looking at some of these drug levels. And they found that people had no level. So they probably weren't taking it around the time of infection or were taking it not as frequently as, as they normally would. But the bottom line is they still, there were still more infections in the study, right? So they actually looked at the cabotegavir arm and again, a lot, lot fewer, fewer infections. But more importantly, I think the, the issue here is that, um, I'm gonna summarize this as best I can, but you have to go back and really watch the presentation and, and see other people present on it too, if you to understand it better. But there, there was more um, uh, problems with, with some of the, um, uh, the fourth generation standard testing that we do for, for HIV testing that was done in the study was, was a little bit delayed in picking up people who had HIV infection in the cabotegravir arm. So when, they, when the people were identified as being HIV infected at their study site visit, when they did the fourth generation test, they, when they, what they did was that anybody who had HIV infection, what they normally do is they, they go look back at stored samples at different time points. And they look back at stored samples to see if were they HIV infected, you know, eight weeks ago, 16 weeks ago, how long ago were they actually HIV infected? Or was that really the first time at that site visit where they actually wound up being infected based on a fourth generation test? And when they went back and looked at some of these stored samples, they found out that some people were actually infected earlier than what was identified at that site visit. So what it really means to us is that I think it calls into question the use of, uh, in some of these injectable products with cabotegravir, for example, should we be doing viral load testing to identify people who have HIV infection? And that's actually what they changed uh, for their, for their new, uh, the new, the, the open label extension. They actually are changing that in their studies to make sure that, 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 that HIV viral loads are done to identify patients instead of just fourth generation HIV testing. So the bottom line is this doesn't mean that the testing is bad. What it means is that basically they can get HIV infected. They still have a good level of cabotegravir, which is preventing the, the tests from kicking over as being positive, at least the fourth generation. But if they did a viral load at those time points, they probably would pick them up earlier. So the concern of what happens during that time period when you're on cabotegravir alone, while you have basically undiagnosed HIV infections, you can get resistance to cabotegravir and other integrase inhibitors. And that's actually what they showed in some of the patients. Really complex, but the bottom line is we're gonna to have to do viral load testing, I think, for people who are on cabotegravir for, for, for PrEP, assuming all this works out and it, and it gets, gets approved. But again, really interesting, interesting information. So I think, I think that's, that's pretty much it, right? We did a lot, of, a lot of stuff today, right? We covered a little bit on, on COVID treatment, a little bit on COVID disparities in care. We covered new drugs, 
And we talked a little bit about some of the, some of the main topics that, um, for, for prep, but you know, it's a quick top line overview of some of those main topics. And I, and I think, uh, I thank Mariana for having me here today to kind of talk about these uh, uh, these key these key pieces of the Croy meeting, and I hope everybody enjoyed it. You know, please feel feel free to um, uh, to take a look at some of the updates that have been done across many different organizations and and different websites, etc. On on Croy. John, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us all about the latest updates from Croy. You know, this conference covered really key issues like COVID and HIV, as well as PrEP and new HIV medications. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika ATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nekaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.